what you are about to hear is part one of how to build a railway. I've split it into two parts because it was running rather long. First part is out now on the 1st of March and the second part will be out on the 14th. Up to you if you want to listen to this and then wait for the next half or if you want to wait for the 14th and then have a listen to both. This won't affect the schedule for the episode after in the beginning of April. Okay, enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Before we start today, I'd like to welcome some new listeners. This show and the audience have grown immensely since the start, from a small audience to thousands and thousands. The back catalogue of episodes has grown too. If you are a new listener, you can certainly start with this show or go back to episode 25, where I started talking about the Industrial Revolution, or go all the way back to episode 1. I'll warn you, my first five episodes are not of the same sound and editing quality as the recent ones. But there is another way to get familiar with the show. On the website, I've started grouping episodes into themes. So if you can't be faffed to go through the feed, but have a burning desire to hear all the episodes focused on Queen Victoria or the eruption of Mount Tambora, just go to www.ageofvictoriapodcast, or one word, dot com. Then on the homepage, there is a menu at the top. Hover your mouse over the word episodes in that menu, and all of the themes will pop up for you to explore. Also, patrons, another big thank you. I've been investing in books for future episodes, thanks to your generous support. For patrons on the top two tiers, I'm pleased to say that the artist, Alice O'Shea, has done fabulous work on the pictures for your free mugs. By the third anniversary, you should get the mug with the lovely new artwork as a benefit of your membership. If anyone else fancies a mug, send me an email and we can work it out. I'll also be getting myself and my long-suffering daughter a t-shirt with the art on it. That's not embarrassing for a teenage girl, right? Matching t-shirts with dad? Anyway, Alice is an incredibly talented artist and I'm delighted to say she takes commissions at aliceoshea at gmail.com and that's A-L-I-C-E-O-C-H-E-T at gmail.com. You can also follow her at Lemon Curd Lover on Instagram. I'd also like to welcome newest Patreon Chantel, who has pledged to become a trusty servant of Queen Victoria, the top tier membership above even the Hohor Toffs. That comes with a particularly special bonus getting to choose a piece of Victorian poetry for me to cover in a mini-sode. I'm looking forward to that. As some listeners might know, whilst Victoria could be a stickler for rank, deference 
and could be God's own original snob, there were some people in her life who were exempt from the rules. They got a pass because they had the loyalty or the talent to make her laugh or distract her from the burdens of her role. Men like John Brown or Abdul Karim, the Munshee. So it is a privilege to have such generous support for the podcast. Thank you. I'd like to thank Gaumis for the kind review. Quote, fascinating time in world history. His voice is soothing and so very English. I'm listening to every episode twice. Pure quality podcast. End quote. Thank you. Also, I've had a few requests that I cover special occasions like Valentine's Day or Halloween more. I'm pleased to say that this is the plan going forward. I've started work on a Halloween special this year. The Valentine's Day special needs me to do the episodes on social class, the fundamental building block of the Victorian world. Now, before we start on today's topic proper, I need to give you a quick note on terminology. I'll be using the word navvy or navvies a fair bit. These were a class of labourer that was considered highly skilled in constructing railways or canals. It is short for navigator. The Victorians did view navvies as labourers, but navvies were considered high-end workers, paid much more than regular labourers, and in much higher demand. So navvies would often appear in accounts separately to labourers in most cases, and contractors would distinguish between them, hiring a mix of labourers and navvies. There were still a lot of distinctions within labourers as well, so don't assume labourers were all unskilled. A good railway labourer could earn two shillings a day, compared to the eight shillings a week for the rural labourer. And don't forget, that's a six to seven day week, and for rural labourers, was highly seasonal. A bricklayer was known as a brickie, was also a labourer too, but he was a class above the casual unskilled labour that emptied wagons or guided horses at the pithead. Miners were a class of their own and considered highly skilled if they were experienced men. Carpenters were craftsmen and in demand on building sites, in mines, tunnels, and the ever-timber-hungry navy. They were amongst the highest-paid labourers on the railways. If you ever accidentally time-travelled to the Victorian era, well, being a skilled carpenter is a good trade to get into, although you will need more than your school woodwork skills, and don't go looking for electric jigsaws. You are doing everything by hand, except for the largest timbers in the steam mills. But you would never want for work unless the gin made your hands shake too much. The Victorians recognised and to a degree respected a bewildering array of practical working class men, probably more than today in some ways. Now, for today's show, we are going to find out how to build a Victorian railway. Imagine that a rich Victorian industrialist wants to build a railway from a factory town to a larger town, and then onwards to a port. Business owners wanted railways 
from places like the bustling international port of Liverpool to the sweatshops in Manchester, Salford and Lancashire that turned the American cotton into clothes. This would later turn into the passenger transport boom as company realised there was also money in people. First of all, there had to be a rough plan and investment. The route sketched out and answers to questions about how the line would get access to all the land along the route. Even getting the ball rolling was hard. A series of draft surveys had to be undertaken and a plan submitted to Parliament for approval to gain an Act of Parliament for the railway. At this early stage, the most well-known figure was the promoter, the man who blended vision, charm, salesmanship and sheer commitment. He was perhaps the same industrialist or business partner. It was a hard job getting those first surveys done. No one wanted to find out their house and land had been marked for demolition by the stroke of a distant engineer's pen. Plus, even if your home escaped, having a railway go past could be very unpleasant. As one letter writer pointed out, his local newspaper, quote, a Quaker who called himself Ebenezer wrote a letter to the Leeds Intelligencer, 13th of January, 1831. On this very line of this railway, I have built a comfortable house. It enjoys a most pleasing view of the country. Now judge, my friend, of my mortification whilst I am sitting comfortably at breakfast with my family, enjoying the purity of the summer air. In a moment my dwellings, once consecrated to peace and retirement, is filmed with the dense smoke of fluted gas, my homely, though cleanly, table, covered with dirt, and the features of my wife and family almost obscured by a polluted atmosphere. Nothing is heard but the clanking iron, the blasphemous song, or the appalling curses of the directors of these infernal engines, end quote. Farmers were usually less than pleased too. Prime fields were at risk. Cattle could be injured by smoke or accidents. Skirmishes between landowners and surveyors escalated into physical violence. Not all of the opposition was vested interests or stuck in the past landowners. Vigorous opposition stopped the Dorchester line going through the Malmbury Rings which had successively been a prehistoric henge, an amphitheatre and a civil war fort. If the lines had not been opposed, a priceless piece of history would have been lost. The world-famous Furness Abbey was also almost a victim of the railway. Oh, and somewhere called Stonehenge was also eyed up as something that could be easily demolished for a railway. That scheme fell through, but the one for St Pancras Abbey, the earliest Clunic monastery in Britain, was built right through the former high altar. When you hear stories like this, you can understand why railway surveyors were often met with clubs, bricks and sometimes guns. Just the hint that a railway was coming 
was enough to trigger intense scrutiny or even outright disorder and violence. Artist and critic John Ruskin hated the railways with a passion. He and the poet Wordsworth fought a furious campaign against railway lines into the Lake District. They wanted to maintain the lonely wildlands, accessible to poets and artists with time on their hands, not open them up to the common day-tripper. Wordsworth was already identified with an idea of Englishness tied to the landscape. And as early as 1814, he was pushing back against the spread of industry. Quote, Meanwhile, at social industry's command, how quick, how vast an increase from the germ of some poor hamlet rapidly produced. Here a huge town, continuous and compact, hiding the face of the earth for leagues and there, where a habitation stood before, abodes of men irregularly massed, like trees in a forest, spread through spacious tracts, o'er which the smoke of unremitting fires hangs permanent and plentiful as wreaths of vapours glittering in the morning sun, and wheresoe'er the traveller turns his step, he sees the barren wilderness erased or disappearing. End quote. Wordsworth wrote an infamous letter to the local paper about the proposed Kendall and Windermere Railway. He pointed out that there were no real economic or industrial benefits to this scheme, which was true, but neglected the benefits of improving transport for the town of Kendall itself. He also argued that this line would damage an unspoiled environment, which was fair criticism. But then he torpedoed himself by pointing out that this would inevitably lead commoners visiting the area to enjoy nature. And his view was that, quote, a vivid perception of romantic scenery is neither inherent in mankind nor a necessary consequence of a comprehensive education, end quote. He spent a fair bit of the letter explaining that most people weren't intelligent enough to appreciate nature. This went down like the Titanic, as you can imagine. Wordsworth decided he was being misunderstood. He wrote a second letter to explain that he only meant that appreciating nature required a sophisticated appreciation of culture, and this alone would allow the viewer to reach the understanding of the romantic and picturesque, and thus was beyond the working class, and perhaps almost everyone, except the enlightened poets and artists. Besides, he reminded readers, the working class would drink and not respect the Sabbath. Having cheerfully poured oil on the flames, he stood back expecting victory. He was disappointed. The railway was built. Interestingly, one of the contractors was a man named Thomas Brassey, ambitious, career-driven, beloved of famous engineer George Stevenson and future multi-millionaire, the antithesis of Wordsworth's and his worldview. The owners of local canals often tried to block schemes for less virtuous reasons. There were also rich landowners with political connections, 
worse, some were members of the aristocracy. Some of the grandest dukes, like the Duke of Wellington, disliked the railways, with their hints of allowing the mob and the lower orders to travel near the greatest states of the quality. In his book, Sybil, the future Prime Minister Disraeli, wrote a good example of the reaction of the aristocracy. Quote, You come by railroad, inquired Lord de Mowbray, mournfully of Lady Marnley, from Marham, about ten miles from us, replied her ladyship. A great revolution, isn't it? I fear it has a very dangerous tendency to equality, said his lordship, shaking his head. I suppose Lord Marnley gives them all the opposition in his power. There is no one as violently against the railroads as George, said Lady Marnley. I cannot tell you what he does not do. He organised the whole of our division against the Marham line. I rather counted on him, said Lord de Mowbray, to assist me in resisting this joint branch here. I was surprised to learn he had consented. Never until the compensation was settled, innocently remarked Lady Marnley. George never opposes them after that. End quote. Lady Marnie has inadvertently indicated that her husband is essentially taking bribes on dropping his opposition to the roots. Offer him or his political friends and landowners enough compensation and suddenly his opposition would vanish like the morning mist. Political allies were essential and that did take either persuasion or corruption. There were a lot of MPs who liked the idea of progress, a dynamic economy, and the added military benefits of railways. So some good schemes could expect support. Then there were those MPs who only cared about money and would trade support for schemes across a pork barrel or a parliamentary committee if you want the technical term. The results weren't always strictly fair either. The Duke of Cleveland had specifically bought his Radby estate to be a countryside retreat away from the industrial north and the railways. He was mortified when some railway commissioners turned up to say a new railway line from Bernard Castle to Darlington was going to pass right through his beloved estate and he didn't get a say in it. On the bright side, This was the infamous Stockton to Darlington Railway, the first railway in the world for passengers. It originally opened in 1825 and ran for 22 miles. The first trip in 1825 was 12 wagons of coal and flour, 6 of guests and 14 wagons full of workmen. The initial journey of just under 9 miles took 2 hours. In summary... There was an immense amount of work before the first spade even hit the ground. Once the politics was settled, the opposition beaten off and the full act of parliament had been gained, then the truly detailed plan was needed. It had to be realistic and cater for huge changes in terrain, from grassland and forests to swamps, mountains and towns. A new, highly detailed set of surveys was needed in much more depth than the pre-act survey. This time, the surveyors had the full force of the law behind to force their way onto the land in question. Engineers in charge 
needed subcontracted junior engineers, surveyors and companies in charge of hiring labourers, the chief engineer was now the man on whom the whole enterprise hinged. He had to turn the sales hype into a well-built and fully operational railway line. The pressure was enormous. If he succeeded and became famous, riches flow into his pockets. He would be eagerly called on for other projects, but if he failed, he could be left penniless and in the workhouse. Naturally, when things went wrong, railway companies blamed engineers, engineers blamed contractors or the company, and the contractors blamed the men, the weather, the company for not providing enough funds to do the work, or the engineer for making plans that were impossible to deliver. Given the pressure, tempers often frayed, and so the vast cast of characters was joined by flocks of lawyers eager to extract their pound, shilling and pence from question of drainage, especially in Britain's wet climate, followed by the stabilisation of cuttings and sidings. Then the army of labour had to be actually recruited, highly skilled surveyors and engineers, company secretaries and clerks, men to cut the forests, clear the undergrowth and break the rocks. Orders had to be placed great industrial foundry for iron, stone from the quarries in Wales on the southwest coast, nails, hammers, tongs, buckets, barrels, gloves, aprons, boots, wagons, nuts and bolts, matches, rags, oil, coal, food, drink, accommodation, pens, paper, offices, storage systems, forest of paperwork, tickets, dockets, stamps and storage sheds, lanterns and pickaxes. The list was endless. The really hard labour had barely begun. I find it ironic that the railways are often talked about as the work of singular great engineers. And that's true in a way. Without the great railway engineers, none of the vision or great innovations needed would have happened. No great engineer could build a railway without the army of skilled workers and unskilled labourers. They were valued in shillings and pennies for their muscle, whilst the lofty engineers claimed the lion's share of rewards. The statue of George Stevenson is hewn from marble and stands proudly at the National Railway Museum, where it was relocated from its original position at Euston Station, whilst his son Robert also gets a magnificent bronze statue outside Euston Station. Yet the men who bled and died turning their dreams into reality don't get a statue at all. According to the Scottish Borders Railway Archive, from an article when they were talking about restoring a line, the construction actual railway involved, quote, First we create a railway formation, a foundation on which the railway lies. This is flattened, ready for ballast to be laid on top. Ballast consists of layers of crushed stone which form the track bed and also help to drain the railway. We then level and stabilise this ballast using special machinery before laying sleepers at precise intervals all the way along the route. Then the tracks are finally laid on top and fixed into place, end quote. But the Victorians didn't have those specialist machines or cranes to lift those massive sleepers 
put them in perfect place. Instead, men grunted and heaved to get the stuff in needed to go. The calories required were enormous. These were incredibly tough men, pushing their bodies to the limit. I quoted a research paper on diet in the episode on fish and chips about calorie requirements. Fits nicely in here again. Quote, Using average figures for work-related calorie consumption, men required between 280 and 440 calories heavy yard work per hour, with women requiring between 260 and 350 calories per hour. This gives a calorific expenditure of between 3,000 to 4,500 calories and 2,750 to 3,500 for women. Total calorific were likely to have been even higher during the winter month, with less insulated and less warmed homes. Working class Victorians used more calories to keep warm than we do. The same held true for workplaces, unless the work, certain factory opening, etc., heated the environment to unhealthy levels. At the top end of the physical activity range were the gators, the labourers who built largely without machinery, the roads and railway that enabled the expansion of the British economy. These men were expanding 5,000 calories or per day, a workforce of thousands that required calories a day. The navigators didn't use much machinery. For some reason, the British remained highly conservative about introducing innovation like steam drills or other machines to assist in digging and construction. The persistent problem of just tossing cheap workers at a problem instead of investing has beset the economy, dragging productivity in key periods. Low pay is a threat to a proper capitalist economy and stifled innovation wrecked key British industries in the late Victorian period. Have a look at some other statistics on physical labour for comparison. Look up some figures about the US Marine Corps training. According to the Livestrong website, quote, physical training classes at boot camp consist of a run and calisthenics, push-ups, sit-ups, and jumping jacks, for example, every day except Sunday. If each class was a 40-minute run at a pace of 6 miles an hour, a 180-pound recruit will burn 504 calories. Add in 20 minutes of intense calisthenics, and that same recruit burns a 218 calories. That's 762 calories being burned six days a week. Plus recruits may also take martial classes, self-defense classes and other physically active classes that will burn even more calories every day. So let's be generous and say the Marines require 2,400 calories a day. That is the basic for a normal man. Add on top of that the extra 762 to take us to a calorie requiring 3,162. Let's add another 1,000 on top of that for all of the various other things the Marines do on an energetic day. So to maintain a static weight doing all that activity, a Marine Corps recruit will need 4,162 calories to break even. Of course, most Marines will be overweight when recruited, so trainers will actually want them in a bit of a calorie deficit. I know I couldn't even come close to that level of fitness and mental fortitude, so well done to those who serve. Now, 
look back at the navigator, they were doing enough work to need 5,000 calories to break even. In other words, these guys get a physical stress level higher than US Marine Corps boot camp every day for their whole lives. I've always emphasized how tough life was for most Victorians. A hard age bred hard people. I mentioned in a patron's episode about some railway who came to the New Forest to build a railway and it was interesting to see that a number of them simply slept on the road as they couldn't afford lodgings, no matter what the weather. Just digging could be tough. The soil in Britain was often waterlogged and some tracks probably looked more like the Battle of the Somme with trenches, mud you could drown in and misery. Skilled workmen complained about losing boots, sucked down into the mud forever. Digging in wet clay was rotten. Every hole seemed to immediately get filled in again as more wet clay oozed in. Like digging a hole around a sandcastle at the beach as the tide comes in, one of the toughest parts of the job was just the amount of earth and rock they had to lift. Filling heavy wagon after heavy wagon with rubble and spoils to take away. I'm going to quote from Anthony Burton's wonderful book, The Railway Builders. It is one of my favourite history books. Beautifully written and you can feel the love of the subject in every page. It has been an absolute cornerstone of this episode. Quote, the debris had to be cleared and loaded into trucks. This was back-breaking work and it was here that the experienced Navi scored over his inexperienced neighbour. On the Chester and Hollyhead line, five Welshmen were needed to fill each truck in the early days. Only three English Navvies the best of the gangs could do even better. Thomas Brassey, in the early years, employed canal navvies as far as was practical. He reckoned that in a full day's work, a gang could fill 14 sets or trains of wagons, working two men to a wagon. Each wagon held two and a quarter cubic yards of spoil which had to be lifted to a height of six foot to clear the sides of the truck. So each man lifted 16 cubic yards of earth and stone over his head. Such numbers often seem meaningless, but anyone who has ever done any gardening might like to think of a hole three foot deep, three foot across and 15 yards long. Then imagine the effort involved in shoveling out all of the earth and clay and chucking it over a head-high wall in one day. Then going out and doing the same thing the next day and the next day and keeping going for weeks on end. End quote. Everyone involved had to be tough considering the work involved. According to one clinical paper I've read, quote, the mid-Victorian navvies, who as seasonal workers, 
towards the bottom end of the economic scale, could routinely shovel up to 20 tonnes of earth per day from below their feet to above their heads. End quote. The energy required was immense. But despite the complaints of poor food and diet, it was clear that with improved food transportation, the workers were actually eating rather well. Quote from the same clinical paper, quote, Mid-Victorian working-class men and women consumed between 50% and 100% more calories than we do today. But because they were so much more physically active than we are today, overweight and obesity hardly existed at the working-class level. The working-class diet was rich in seasonal vegetables and fruit, with consumption of fruits and vegetables amounting to 8 to 10 portions per day. This far exceeds the current national average of around 3 portions and the government recommended 5 a day. The mid-Victorian diet also contained significantly more nuts, legumes, whole grains and omega-3 fatty acids than the modern diet. Much meat consumed was offal, which has a higher micronutrient density than the skeletal muscle we eat today. Prior to the introduction of margarine in the late Victorian period, dietary intake of trans fats were very low. There were very few processed foods and therefore little hidden salt other than in bread. Recipes suggest that significantly less salt was added to meals. At a table, salt was not usually sprinkled on a serving, but piled at the side of the plate, allowing consumers to regulate consumption in a more controlled way. The mid-Victorian diet had a lower calorific density and higher nutrient density than ours. It had a higher content of fibre, including fermentable fibre, and a lower sodium-potassium ratio. In short, the mid-Victorians ate a diet that was not only considerably better than our own, also far in advance of the current government recommendations, it much more closely resembles the Mediterranean diet, proven in many studies to promote health and long levity, or even the Paleolithic diet, recommended by some nutritionists. End quote. Still, this was the benefit of being a skilled worker with much more pay. It was far, far better than the diet available to the destitute urban poor and the unemployed. I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that industrial accidents were both horrific and routine. When heavy wagons were moved up and down slopes, they could run out of control and crush people. Some of the workmen took a dislike to perceived weaker men in the works and deliberately overloaded some of the wagons, making them hard to control. Then they harried the man to move the wagons up the slippery slopes. The wagons were usually aimed 
at the spoil heap at a down angle. Then at the last moment, the horses were unhitched from the wagon and its own momentum sped it into a solid barrier, causing it to tilt and dump its load on the spoil heap, usually helped by the spreaders with their spades. This was incredibly dangerous for the man, or boy, needing the wagon train, and the spreaders. One boy, James Allen, was employed to help guide the horse and wagons to the spoil heap. He slipped and fell. His left arm and thigh were crushed under tons of wagons, destroying the limbs below. He died in agony of massive blood loss. The spreaders were also at risk. They got too close to the wagon as it tipped. They could get buried, and a number did. A horrible way to die. Some navvies deliberately overloaded the wagons, and this was called running them red. It let them push inexperienced or weak men to breaking point. For the next half, we'll be out on the 14th of March.